Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners. For this special mini season, I'm thrilled to partner with Athabasca University to bring you a three-part series focused on the future of learning and the power of online learning. This year marks Athabasca U's 50th anniversary, and they're celebrating with a series of exciting events and initiatives that explore the future of learning. In this episode, I'm joined by Athabasca University's president, Dr. Neil Fasina. We had a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation about the past, present, and future of online learning and what's next for Athabasca U. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Athabasca University President Dr. Neil Fasina. He joined Athabasca University in 2016 following a series of leadership roles at Nate, including Provost and Vice President Academic, as well as Dean of the J.R. Shaw School of Business and the School of Culinary Arts. He holds a PhD in Management from the University of Toronto. He is also a Chartered Professional in Human Resources with a CPHR designation and a Chartered Director through the Institute of Corporate Directors. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. I'd love to talk a bit more about Athabasca University. Can you tell us a bit more about the organization itself? Who is AU serving? Why is it unique? And where does it fit in the academic landscape? So, so when we think about Athabasca University within Alberta, we are one of four comprehensive academic and research universities. So we are in the same grouping as the University of Alberta, the University of Calgary, and the University of Lethbridge. But being a, a comprehensive academic and research university, what it really means is that we offer programming, everything from you know small uh, learning opportunities through certificates, diplomas, degrees, all the way up to terminal credentials across a wide range of, of disciplines. And then in addition to that, we have a a core mandate of progressing the state of practice when it comes to research. So very much that teaching and research environment. And, And knowing that that puts us into a certain category, what we then get to do is leverage what makes us cool. And the unique element of AU actually is found in our in our mission and in our vision. Just starting a little bit with the storyline, human potential is is distributed equally, right? Around around Alberta, around Canada, around the world. But access to knowledge is not distributed equally, right? It's the ability to, to seize knowledge and, and have an individual or their community rise to their highest potential is not something that everyone has access to. And so when we think about what AU does is we actually start at that end of the spectrum. We start at that, that democratized side and just say, listen, everyone should have the opportunity to learn at the higher level. So as Canada's only open and digital first university, it's, that's, that's our starting premise. It's how do we completely dismantle the barriers between individuals and their learning journey so that that individual and the community in which they live can rise to their highest potential. And so when we think about what makes us unique beyond kind of that openness, I mean, it's, it becomes an incredibly inclusive environment. It also allows us to, to take the learning to our learners. Right? So when we think about traditional higher education, it typically means you as an individual learner have to go to a building and, and be part of a classroom environment there. Whereas in our case, where you live, your background, who you are, we believe that that makes you a better learner. It makes you a, a more robust learner. So what we do is we bring the learning to you, right? which is kind of a cool little twist. That is a very cool idea. And I love this idea of democratizing education. And when you think about some of the the challenges that businesses are trying to address in terms of diversity, I mean, it really starts with who has access to that knowledge in the first place and who has the training and skill set. So it's really fascinating how you've expressed 
the uh, the unique coolness and mission of Athabasca University. Now, I know that 2020 is a really big year for AU. You are going to be 50 years old, so that's a pretty significant milestone. And we're going to talk more about where things are going, what's the future of online learning. But I always think it's nice to contextualize the future in terms of the past. So we're going to dive back a little bit and talk about this concept of distance education. Now, I remember way back uh, when I was in high school, it's kind of in the late 1980s, I took a distance ed course. It was my very first course, and it arrived in the mail with these booklets. There were these cassette tapes, and you listened to the tapes, and you filled in the booklets, and you mailed this whole thing in, and then it was marked, and they mailed it back to you. And that's how distance ed used to be done back in in the old days. Just wondering, Neil, if you have any stories um, from the early days of distance education that you'd like to share. It's a great context, right? Because when we think about the, the distance education of uh, let's call it the first generation of distance education, right? So you, you referred to your high school course in, in the late 80s. Uh, AU was starting that process in the, in the early 70s, right? And, and that concept of, uh, we, we called it the proverbial book in a box. Right. You either phoned us, uh, you mailed in your application, or you faxed us your, your application, right? And that's it. That's I do more, remember the fax oh, yeah, the machine. The fax machine, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and, and what we did is we took a whole bunch of materials and we literally put them into a box. And we sent those to you and whether or not they were uh, VHS tapes or whatever the case may be, everything worked at the pace of traditional mail. Right, so you got your materials in the mail. You found your way into those materials, uh, and when you needed to to submit an assignment, you'd you'd literally, you know, put it back in the mail, and it would find its way to us. And one of the cool twists today you managed to pull off in that environment is is not just correspondence style learning, but correspondence style or distance based learning in the natural sciences. Right. So when the, the, I'll say the more recent trend in in wanting to make sure that STEM is a focal point. We've been doing distance science, technology, engineering, and math learning for 50 years. So like when you did chemistry, we sent you a chemistry lab in the mail, right? And, and so it, it came in, in what come, still does come in one of those hard plastic cases. Everything is pre-measured. You open up the kit, and the first thing you get is the instruction manual on how not to blow up your kitchen, right? And it's, <laughs> Very important and, point. And, yeah, well, and I say it jokingly, <laughs> but really, I mean, when we, we think about chemistry labs, one of the major key pieces is safety. And now that we put that into your learning environment being your home, that safety now becomes our concern, right, in your own home. And, and actually, just last year, we won an award for distance-based chemistry, because it's it's something that we've we've been able to fine tune over time, but it's you, you know you you kind of sit back and go really I can do chemistry or physics or in in my kitchen that that to me is just really cool. That is really remarkable, and I hadn't really because honestly I'm I'm not a sciences person, so I hadn't really considered chemistry. But wow, that's pretty impressive that you're able to send all of those materials through the mail and make sure people are doing this. Without any uh, kitchen incidents, um, I am hoping. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. In terms of distance education, I mean, now that we have the internet, so we had kind of these pre-internet days, and now that we have online learning, I'm just kind of curious about what you see as maybe the evolution of distance learning into online learning, or how are these things either similar or different? Sure. So let's fast forward from the the 70s to, I'll say, the first generation of internet learning, right? So AU, and this is a proud moment for us. So last year, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the world's first online MBA, 
right? Which, which is kind of cool. But when you think about the year it launched. So when we go 1994, we are now internet learning. And, wow. and you talked about doing it, your distance ed in, in the 80s. You remember the internet in 1994, Right, 56K was considered fast when, when we used our phone line and only our phone line to dial in. Heaven forbid someone on the house picked up the phone, <laughs> right? Because you just, you lost everything. And, and so you think about how future forward AU was thinking when at the time, kind of half the world said, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's going to catch on. It's this, this internet thing isn't, isn't it's really bad. Yeah. I remember and that. how are you going to possibly learn? you know, across the internet. And then the other half of the world said, well, wait just a second here, right? There's something, something going on. And so what we started to see was the migration of two forms of learning into the online space. So we saw the digitization of, of that distance-based learning, but we also saw people starting to think through, how do I digitize a place-based learning, right? Because you now had this new medium. It was either, you were either in a classroom or it was distance, but this internet piece gave us an opportunity to, to actually find a bridge potentially between the two. And so you start at that level of, of low bandwidth. It, it was more about digitizing product and just uploading it onto the online space. And that got us through that first generation. But you know, as we've started to see technologies emerge more recently, that is gonna have to take a leapfrog. It's, it has to actually just let go of that first generation thinking, but even just the concept of trying to digitize a distance-based experience and digitize a place-based experience, we're not asking those questions anymore because mm -hmm. those two questions themselves are actually irrelevant. It's, it's how are we creating the ultimate online learning space, right? right? It's not about digitizing something that we used to have. It's literally about creating something new yeah. because the online learner doesn't expect or frankly doesn't want a digitized place-based experience. So interesting when you, you put it in those terms and thinking about the different waves that have come through. And and certainly 1994, I mean, you guys were, were there very, very early. I remember at that, at that point I was um, doing my undergrad and I remember we had access to the internet, but nobody was thinking about this as the place for, for learning. So um, really forward thinking on your part to be in that, at that uh, stage of the game. Diving into online learning a little bit more and thinking about it in the context of, of who is this for? Is, is online learning for everyone or is it for a certain type of learner? What kind of person does well in this online learning environment? So it's, a, it's an awesome question. And, and admittedly, I think my answer is different today than it would have been even three or four years ago because of the evolution of what we're seeing online, right? So is online learning for everyone? I'm going to shift it just slightly and just say online learning can be for anyone. It might not be an individual's first choice if their learning approach prefers to have, a, you know, a face-to-face -face interaction, but it doesn't mean that they can't learn online. And, and the reason I say that is that for some people, it's their absolute preference. They, they want that online learning experience. They want to be able to get knowledge on demand that's designed just for them, just in time. We see that phenomenon in the Netflix kind of space, right? We used to all drive to a, a blockbuster style store. We had to look at a shelf. Hopefully they had it in. You know, we were all excited when we no longer had to rewind. But now if it's not at our fingertips, 
it takes us too long. It's, we're, we're anxious for that content. And so the natural sort of desire of, of individuals to truly want that content when they need it is pushing more and more people to see online learning as a positive alternative, not as, well, I couldn't do something place-based, so I guess I have to do online, mm-hmm. but rather saying, wait a minute, I can do this now? That's definitely the way I want to go. And, and with the advent of some of the, the new technologies out there, it's such an immersive learning space. It's no longer just about reading something online. There's authentically something for anyone. We have to be able to match someone's uh, context as well as how they choose to learn to the experience that they actually want. I think of the phrase, maybe it used to be the poor second cousin, but now it's a preferred method and it's accessible. And I think about the many guests that I've talked to over the last couple of seasons, and quite honestly, uh, their educational journeys may not have been possible had it not been for online learning in in some context. Now, there are different types of, of online learning. So in my program, we move through with a cohort. So there's a group of people and we're all learning together and we, we've actually really bonded uh, quite a lot. And then there are other courses that are a little bit more individual in nature. Can you tell us a bit about um, the experiences of offering different types of online courses at AU? What are some of the key differences uh, that you're finding? Are there certain subjects that lend themselves better to one way or another? Sure. So we use the word asynchronously. So it's the self-guided, it's the individualized. Uh, I choose to register in this course on this month, and, and I've got a certain pace that I need to go through it. And in that asynchronous environment the interesting twist here and you use the word you know we we bonded we don't just enable a student to to self-pace there's actually a whole social network that goes in behind helping that learner go through that self-paced learning environment so whether or not that be our our individualized support model where if you bump into a problem it's not as though you have to solve it on your own you can email text phone in work with our our tutors and our academic experts and they will help guide you through that so there's still there's still a social interaction in the asynchronous world we also find that the the learners are connecting on their own right so they they almost create their own social network and so you might be at a different part of the course but you've got kind of this this camaraderie of oh yeah we're all doing introductory stats where are you in the course and and so there almost becomes a peer-to-peer interaction now, that's a, a large portion of what we do, but we also have synchronous, right? So as, as we start to see movement into the graduate school space, a lot more reliance on mentorship, debate. So it's, it's not that you need to be sitting in the same room. You might be sitting in a completely different country, but you're going through it at approximately the same time because the, the topic of debate is the part that kind of guides where you are in the course. And so we tend to see a little bit more synchronous learning or together learning uh, as we move into the graduate space. And then also what we're finding is that in some cases, and, and we're doing this with Indigenous partners, where we actually start to bleed into offline, right? So you've got asynchronous and synchronous online learning that now complements an opportunity to actually welcome Indigenous ways of knowing, and, and we're now bleeding into that place-based land-based experience with our synchronous or asynchronous, right? So it's it's never really a black and white. There's always there's always shades of gray kind of throughout that whole process. 
Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it seems like a very holistic approach that AU has taken um, in terms of, of shaping the various offerings. I'm kind of curious about the role of the instructor in all of this. And where, where do they fit into uh, this learning landscape, which kind of encompasses both on and offline elements? The role of the instructor, professor, the, the academic, uh, it, it, within a distance space and especially within a technology-enabled environment, takes on a characteristic that that if you were to introduce that characteristic to a traditional kind of university environment, the the academy at that, that environment might kind of go, that really just... That looks a little different to me, right? Because we think about what our, our academy has to do. We need to be able to create high quality learning experiences that can be created on scale. It's not a question of one professor to X number of learners in a classroom. It's one professor to potentially infinite number of learners. And so that the architecture of what goes into designing a learning experience uh, from the learning outcome to how those learning outcomes come together to how a learner pathways through those learning outcomes, there's a unique talent to that architecture. And so the academy, the professoriate, has to adapt to that, right? So they, they take on a almost a, a learning architecture role in a way that you might not see elsewhere. And then once we create that learning experience and, and it's placed into an online learning environment, whether or not it be synchronous or asynchronous, now the role of, of the academy becomes supporting the learner, right? It's because it, we, we do have a fairly self-guided learning process, right? I, I like to start now. I'd like to progress at my own pace. But now it becomes the role almost like a coach, right? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, you know, you've, you've, you've stumbled into a, a challenge you can't solve on your own or uh, you need support in terms of tying a couple of different learnings together. Connect in with us and we'll help you through that process. So it, there is very much a, a partnership between our academy and the learner. Right. And that's, uh, you know, something, again, you don't necessarily think of in, in distance learning where, you know, well, I'm, I'm not necessarily seeing my professor. You're mm-hmm. right, but you might be interacting with them literally daily. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. in, a, in a traditional environment, you might get to see them twice a week, maybe three times a week, you know, yeah. if, you, if you have a lab. Whereas ours, you might have one week where you interact 40 times. And then you might not talk to your, your, the academy for two weeks because you managed to progress on your own. So it's, it's a very dynamic role, right? So there's a unique talent on the architecture side, and then there's a unique talent in terms of supporting our learners as, as they go forward. It sounds like there is so much fluidity to um, how you've designed things. And also, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about consistency as well across uh, scale and just having to do that architecting up front and really thinking th- uh, things through would give you that consistency of delivery, um, which is really important as well. Now, obviously, you and I are huge proponents of online learning, but are there any disadvantages? Oh, that's a catchy question. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say the disadvantages are only those that we create for ourselves. It's because the disadvantages that we often think about in terms of, of, of online learning are often based in an assumption. Like the traditional disadvantages that we tend to hear are, 
you know, I'm not going to have social interaction uh, with other learners. You know, yet the the social media space has has allowed us to bridge that. You know, I have to be self motivated and work through it at my own pace. And and yet we look at one of you know the employability skills today is time management. The disadvantages that we tend to think are there for online learning, I, I think, are actually more artifacts of assumptions we've made, as compared to saying anything's possible. How do I make positive what might be considered a, a negative in that online learning space? And it's just, it, it comes more to that self-motivation and, and the, the frame of reference that we use, I think. And what about your students? What are they saying about going to school at AU? Uh, what are their demands? What are their expectations mm-hmm. given this online world that we live in? You know, I'm going to come at that one from, from two angles. The first is just to give you a sense of who, who our learners are. Because our learners, just based on their pure demographics, create certain needs, right? So if you consider that our quote-unquote typical learner is a mature learner, so north of 25, uh, they tend to have a dependent at home, so either a parent or a child. They tend to be working full-time, so they've got economic commitments. In our case, be the first in their family to attend higher learning. And so when you consider the life responsibilities of our, of our typical learner, that creates a demand set on us where we have to exhibit ultimate flexibility. So when you talked about that fluidity, we don't have a choice. That, that's our learner population. We need to be flexible. We need to be in their space. We need to be ready when they are. And so that need continues. That need adapts a little bit going back to the, you know, the book in the box versus, you know, the, the on-demand style learning, but the demand is still there. It just shows itself a little differently, right? So when a, a student needed flexibility in a correspondence style, it was just, well, you know, do I have to find my textbook now and I can, I can study while, you know, my, my kids are falling asleep or it's, it's the end of the evening and, and this is the time I can find. Whereas in an online on-demand space, it might be when I'm writing the LRT, right? Mm-hmm. So it, the demand for flexibility remains. It's just how we how we bridge that demand changes. But as we go forward, what we're also seeing is that, that institutions like universities are almost becoming small communities or small cities into and of themselves. So when we think of a place-based organization, you tend to think of counseling supports, right? So there'll be staff psychologists, just because we're an online space doesn't mean that those requests go away. So we have to build very much the social backstop for our learners so that they can focus on what we want them to focus on. And that is their learning. And we just have to do it differently, right? So rather than having a place-based psychologist, how do we bring, you know, counselors into an online space? And, you know, going back to that concept of 24 time zones, how do we possibly make that available mm-hmm you know, at, at when the learner needs it, uh, not necessarily when our building is open. So we're seeing a lot more requirements for that whole wraparound support environment so the learners can, can authentically look at their learning journey. And, and frankly, that's, that's our job. We want to make it so you learn. We're, uh, we want to take all the, all the stressors and the barriers away. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'm incredibly familiar with that particular learner. I, I am that learner and the, the guests 
on this show that I speak to are also of that uh, demographic. And we have a lot of other commitments outside of our learning journey, but we also want to put this at the center yet need that flexibility. So it's really interesting that you're, you're able to offer that and also think about the additional supports that are necessary and really critical to education because it's not just about delivering content, it's ensuring that people are well supported to have the best learning journey that they can. Now, we've been talking a lot about that kind of the present day where we're at with online learning, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the future. Can you tell us a bit about your plans for this next chapter in AU's history and how your experience in this role over the last five years is informing your perspective as you move into your second term? The, the journey for Athabasca University as, as a university to move into what we call the University of the Future, right? The University of 2067. That's not a short journey. It takes us time to be able to put in place the things that we need to be able to do that. And so the last three and a half years and the next kind of year and a bit are about creating the platform from which opportunity becomes unlimited. And I've said to our internal team members, and I'll I'll say to, to anyone that's willing to listen, we have to create, in essence, the ultimate sustainability environment. Because once we actually start to try to meet the needs of the global population, we actually have to start making choices, right? So we've spent the last three and a half, and and again, the next 18 months, building a new digital campus, right? So it'll be completely cloud-based. We have built, or are in the process of building, uh, and, and huge thanks to our academy, for building a a new innovative learning model that's authentically got the learner at the center. And I I mean that beyond, you know, just saying we're student-centered or, or, no, we're literally changing the way a learner learns. And we're putting in place the processes that we need to be able to do that on a global scale. And once we've made all of those, those adjustments where we authentically will never have to say no to a learner, then the hard part begins. And I mean that with the greatest sincerity, like we talk about some of the hard decisions we need to make today. We have to make these decisions because we have to, right? We've got a moral obligation to create an environment that is ultimately globally scalable. But once we're there, now we actually have to choose. And this is this is the hard part, right? Because a university can't be everything to everyone. It just inherently, it's not possible. And so we actually, as an institution, once we're at that fully sustainable environment, we actually have to start deciding who we're there for on a global scale. And and those are hard decisions to make, right? Are we, are we trying to bend a social curve in one part of the world versus another? That's a moral decision. Those are hard decisions. Are we, are we there primarily for the, the mature learner versus a, a learner that's 14? That's a hard decision, right? It's, and, and so that, that next iteration, that, that next term for me, and, and it's really not for me. I'm just the president. I get to be part of a very cool team. But that next term is, is going to be that challenge of where do we authentically want to bend curves, right? right? On the social side, the economic side, the cultural side, knowing that we can't bend them all. Yeah. But it's it's going to be a lot of fun when, when we get to make those choices. Do you have any sense uh, of of that now? Or are you just sort of sitting at the precipice of this going, we've got the ability to scale, we have our cloud infrastructure, and now we have to really dig into that work? Or do you have any sense of, of which direction things might move in for the university? 
So we are just getting a sense uh, now of the depths of the challenges that we're facing as a society. And, and I don't mean as though like we're suddenly discovering these things, but some of the numbers are starting to emerge on the Canadian front. If you look at the increased speed of technology, we're going to start to see increased technological unemployment. So it's not that someone's going to be necessarily unemployed or they might be on the road to unemployment because they're not keeping up to the technologies. In that case, we're not talking your, your typical 17-year-old or 18-year-old coming out of high school just looking to enter university or college or a polytech, but rather you're talking you and I who are, are mid-career or even late career going, wow, I got to go back to school. Think about the millions of Canadians that won't have access to that unless someone like AU steps up and creates a welcoming, inclusive environment. We're literally talking in the millions. And then you stretch beyond Canada and one number suggests that we're, we're facing approximately 139 million new learners into higher education over the next 10 years. That's, that's beyond current just capacity and replacement. When you put that number in terms of sticks and bricks, that means over 700 place-based universities to be built every year for the next 10 years. Wow. Right? And the challenge is, is that some of those growing populations are in parts of the world where they functionally don't have the dollars for the infrastructure. So even the concept of building a university is off the table. So it, for us, what it means is, you know, obviously we want to meet Alberta and Canada's needs, but also trying to get a, our head wrapped around, and I keep using the words, the moral obligation that we have mm -hmm. as, a, as a, you know, a built-in Canada solution. And what part of the world are we going to be able to help in the most culturally appropriate way as, as a partner as compared to just sort of landing in and saying, hi, we're here and this is what we do. I mean, to be able to help certain parts of the world that are booming populations that going back to one of the comments I made earlier, they just simply don't have access. Mm -hmm. That's where our head is now, right? So it's, it's not that we have the solution yet. It's not that we have the targeted kind of location, but we're just really getting a sense of where, you know, where are the impacts going to be the most felt and where can we authentically show up the best? Yeah, and you've raised a number of really interesting and large societal issues, whether that's being in a, a country where they just don't have the resources to build universities and, and keep up with demand. And also this issue of needing to constantly have a lifelong learning approach. And so there are more and more people that need to either retrain or upgrade aspects of their education and keep pace with technology and all of the new things that the world is bringing on board. So you have a massive uh, demand to meet. But it sounds like you've set the stage. And I, I just want to dig into the technology a little bit. So you mentioned the cloud-based um, architecture and infrastructure. Are there other kind of cool aspects of the technology that you can share at this point that um, you've either rolled out or are looking at and investigating? For us, the cloud means access, right? It, it means that provided you have the ability to connect pretty much anywhere on the planet, it means that you have instant access to, to AU. In addition to some of those pieces, what we're, what we're seeing, and, and it's working with technology partners to, to adapt the learning environment. Right. So let's look at a project that we're rolling out, actually, probably within this calendar year. When we think of online learning environments, the historical approach was it was about the learning management system, right? It was how do I log in to a learning management system? And, and those learning management systems were designed for semester-based, typically place-based, 
learning environments. And so they didn't necessarily connect seamlessly to the, the student uh, support system. They didn't necessarily connect seamlessly to the student information system. So, you know, a student's data was in one spot, their learning was in another, their, their support system was in another. What we've actually had to do in order to create a fully integrated learning environment is, is we're bringing in a new integrated set of technologies that actually creates a seamless line between those those different places. So when a learner is interacting with us, we're not going to ask the learner to navigate our bureaucracy. That's our problem, right? We, we need to authentically be able to bring the answer to the learner when they need it and have the data at our hand. But in order to do that, we need to really reinvent our own technology. So that stuff is coming out this year. Uh, we start to see the impact potentially of 5G communities, right? So we're, we're, we've got a couple of communities in Canada that are already in the early stages of 5G technology, but the ability to have that speed available to us and what it creates is the opportunity for highly immersive learning environments, right? So think about the virtual reality or the augmented realities. Having that technology infrastructure with our integrated learning system allows us to start embedding some of those things into the to, into the learning environment in a way that don't feel clunky. Like it's not a, a virtual reality addition to a course. It's potentially authentically an entire course done in virtual reality. Those are two very different realities, right? And so we, we're seeing augmented and virtual reality. We're seeing the role of machine learning and augmented intelligence. I won't go to artificial yet, but augmented intelligence in terms of some of the learning aids, right? So some of the back technology parts of the learning systems where they're able to identify learners that might be at risk uh, of not understanding something just simply based on where they spend their time. Uh, We're seeing learning coaches pop up where you've got the ability to interact with a bot of some nature just to test yourself, right? You, you don't necessarily need to interact with your learning materials in a textbook form or, or other things. We can actually start to create really robust, really immersive learning environments simply because the computing power is now there. That is so cool. Everything from what you said about the digital campus, because as someone who has um, worked in many of these older systems, these older learning management systems, it does feel like you're bouncing around to all the different places to get all the different pieces of what you need. And it can be a little bit of a disjointed experience versus having the platform really work for you. And when you talk about uh, virtual reality and machine learning, and perhaps one day artificial intelligence, which is a great bit of a touch point onto someone of what I've been learning at AU in terms of machine learning and AI. It's really fascinating to think about where we might be in in five to 10 years. So I'm just curious if, if you have any predictions about that that you'd care to share about what the future looks like, say, even five years from now for AU when it comes to these technologies. Okay, so and are we are we gonna get to go further than five years? Oh, next? okay, yeah. If you if you feel like you can project further than that, by all means, you <laughs> go ahead. And... With the incredible caveat that <laughs> all of it might not come true. Um, no, so if we if we think about the next five years for AU, what I would love to be able to see, and I and I do believe this is an achievable goal, is that AU has a learning environment that is authentically built on the premise of just for me, just enough, just in time, anywhere on the planet, throughout their entire life at the touch of a button, no matter where they are on a planet. 
and they can do it uh, at any moment, right? So like, as an example, like today we have 12 registrations a year, not your typical semester. But imagine being anywhere and being able to go onto your AU app and say, I want to learn that now. You're already registered in it. That is possible in, in the next five years. Amazing. Right. And, and, and obviously that, that's supported by uh, intelligent agents, you know, helping coach you, uh, pinging you on your phone saying, hey, listen, I saw that you, you logged in, but you haven't been in in two weeks. Is there something wrong? Can we support you? Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way through to, to intelligent virtual or augmented spaces. So maybe you're in a, a doctorate class that's technically spread across 30 countries all at the same time, but you're seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And all you're doing is wearing glasses. Like that, that to me is fun, right? So, and that's five years. And because those technologies are here today. That's can, only five years out. I, I think, wow. I, authentically, I think we can do stuff like that in five years. Amazing. Okay, so what do you see further oh. out from that? Now, now we get into, you know, it's, it's the futurist mentality, right? So again, everything that I, I, I'm about to say <laughs> comes with the caveat <laughs> we won't hold that you none, to of this. It, none of it might come <laughs> true. Like we talked today about bringing learning to you. Think about a world in which learning is ubiquitous, right? So you can learn from anything in your environment. So today we tend to look at our phone, right? And say, well, that's, that's our learning technology today. But with the internet of things, imagine your home being an intelligent agent in which you actually interact. So, I mean, if you think about the smart speaker technologies today, the commercials we see, it's like, you know, please turn off my lights. Imagine being able to walk into your house and go, you know what? I think I'd like to learn about the Socratic method today. And I think I'd like to learn about it from Socrates. And Socrates appears in your living room, right? And it's built on the future kind of holodeck kind of things. But even some of those technologies exist today. Our Google or whatever search engine we use, and and we want to find an answer. When we have that at our fingertips, literally ubiquitously, what do we as humans need to know? Right? What do we now need to think about? And it's to me, that's, that's moving what it means to be a human being forward. Like it's just, it's like today we have to worry about very technical knowledge to be able to apply it somewhere. But imagine having that technical knowledge be ubiquitous to you. It allows you to progress as a human and, and truly start to think differently. You talk about learning about AI. AI is built on rules. Someone creates those rules. Who teaches those rules, right? Like, so when we think about intelligent agents, who's teaching the intelligent agent? Right? And, and how are we doing that in the most ethical and humane way? These are some of those kind of really hard questions we're going to have to tackle going forward. But like the future of learning to me is just, it's no longer going to be about an episode. It's not going to be about going somewhere. It'll literally be surrounding you. That's so exciting. And you're totally speaking my language because my research is about AI and ethics. And I'm hoping to talk to many of those people who are creating that future and weigh in on some of these deep philosophical issues that we need to consider. Because you're right, it's more than just the technology itself. That certainly is a very big, important and exciting piece of it. But it's how we're going to embed that and work with that in our society. And you brought up the holodeck. So I'm, I'm totally getting the image of the Star Trek beaming in Socrates so I can learn directly from Socrates and Aristotle about all of these ethical issues. That would be incredibly fascinating to see that happen. I want to go back to this quote that I found alongside your bio, and it's from Winston Churchill. And it says, this is no time for ease and comfort. It is time to dare and endure. 
What does this quote mean to you personally as you lead AU into the future? I read it as an incredibly loaded statement because what it does is it, it actually motivates me. I authentically believe in AU's mission and, and, and what we're able to do. In order to do that, though, uh, we need to disrupt. We need to authentically think differently. And if we're not willing to dare to do that, then we're going to just, and I don't want to sound negative, but we're going to stale date. So if we're not continually disrupting, we're not going to be able to keep up to what society needs and, and, and be able to actually meet that, that obligation of, of creating a universally accessible learning environment. And then beyond that, you know, I'm reminded of something that, that Einstein was saying at one point in time, saying that we can't solve today's problems with the same logic that we used to create them. Right. So that, that concept of not sitting back, not being comfortable, but always pushing ourselves out of our own thinking pattern and saying, you know what, that's a great idea. What assumptions did you build that on? Now let's destroy those assumptions and see if your idea still holds. It forces us to, to dismantle the logic that we use just so we can start imagining that future because it, it, it takes us time to put things in place, right? So we can't just flick a switch and magically the technology exists. We need to think about these things 5, 10, 15 years down the road. And so by forcing ourselves to, to actually dismantle our own thinking, A, it forces us to learn, which is kind of fun, but it also forces us to think differently. So to me, you know, Churchill's quote of, of not sitting back, it's time to, to take a risk, it's time to endure, that's inherent in the DNA of AU. That's great. And while disruption is never easy, it is necessary. And it sounds like you have an amazing foundation upon which to build. And I just want to ask you, Neil, as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about Athabasca University or the future of online learning? So a couple of things. Number one, I, I think when it comes to online learning itself, the opportunities are endless, right? So you asked at one point, is, is online learning for everyone? And I, I, I authentically believe that online learning can be for anyone and, and truly take the chance to explore it because don't make the assumptions that many people have around online learning. Beyond that, I've had an opportunity today to, to share with you and your listeners the amazing story that is AU. But like I said earlier, I'm just the president. I've got an unbelievable team that actually makes this come to reality every day. And it would be terrible of me not to tip my hat to that group of people. They get up every morning and authentically try to make not only AU a better place, but but the world a better place through AU. So my thanks uh, goes out to them. They are the true innovators. They are the true fabric of AU. Wonderful. Well, Neil, I want to say thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your thoughts about AU and the future of online learning. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect with us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded at Unit B Coworking, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. A huge thanks to our series partner, Athabasca University, for supporting the show. You can learn more about Athabasca University and their PowerEd offering at powered.athabascau.ca and use the offer code INGRAM20 to get 20% off your course. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.